I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hey everyone, we are approaching the end of 2021, and so we wanted to do a a short episode where we discuss the top news stories in wildlife health in 2021. Yep, and we're recording this on December 30th, and we're currently in my parents' house, so apologies if there is some background noise. My mom will probably accidentally barge in at some point. She's doing laundry downstairs. You might be able to hear that in the background. They have their grandfather clock, which chimes <laughs> not every hour, but every 15 minutes. And we can't figure out how to change that setting very easily. So it's all part of, you know, the realness here. Um, but we hope that everyone's having a safe and healthy holiday wherever you guys are. Um, it's always good to get family time this uh, time of year. Yeah, for sure. Even when it cuts into your recording. Yeah, and hopefully um, nobody's having uh, any uh, unwanted COVIDcations. Yes, right, like me, right now. <laughs> Your clinic's closed for the time being. For the time being, one of one of the places I work, um, we had to cancel some appointments today because we have some staff members with COVID. So, um, with that, we have some time to record. So we figured this would be. A great opportunity to get our next episode out and um yeah let's do it yeah so you have a list of the top five news stories in 2021 yeah and i'll preface this by saying when we say top five we went through or i should say i went through and pulled out some of the top stories that were um widely distributed so these were stories that you know made it into mainstream media and news outlets, even for folks that are not in the wildlife health realm, you may have heard some of these stories. They were on, you know, CNN and things like that. So these are not necessarily the top five in terms of significance or um, importance for a particular species, but these are some of the most widely shared news stories that involve wildlife health in 2021. I have seen the list and I know a decent decent bit about most of the news stories, but some of these I don't know a whole lot about. Uh, but I can say from what I've reviewed thus far, they're all very fascinating. So buckle up. All right. So here we go. Okay. So first on the list, we have SARS-CoV-2, otherwise known as the infamous COVID-19 in wildlife. Right. So we say SARS-CoV-2 because technically when we say COVID-19, that refers to the disease caused by the virus, SARS-CoV-2. So for what we're talking about here, this is instances where beginning in 2020 and then leaking over into 2021, we had instances where we actually detected the virus SARS-CoV-2 um, in different wildlife species. And we did a podcast episode about this some some while back. I forget what episode it is. <laughs> Maybe like four. Yeah, it was, it was earlier on. So we talked about this issue a while back in one of our episodes. Um, 
I forget which episode it is, but you can look it up. It was Four or five. A, something yeah. In that it, was, it was earlier on. And in that episode, we were talking about detection of um, COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 um, stemming from farmed mink and then spill over from those mink farms into surrounding wildlife. And so... Um, yeah, and before that, or around that same time, did it being detected in zoo animals as well. I think tigers and some other felines that were susceptible to coronaviruses. And there's been other stories of, of zoo animals and animals in captivity getting it. People's people's pets. You haven't heard a lot of a lot of news about that of late, but you know people's pets getting it. Yeah, exactly. Dogs, cats, etc. And so, more recently. We have now also seen in the news that some surveillance efforts have actually detected SARS-CoV-2 in white-tailed deer. So that more recently in the last few months here at the end of 2021 um, has been the big, the big story. And so given that now we're starting to see these events, which, you know, technically you might be able to call it a reverse zoonosis. So for example, there have been a few recent studies that have come out talking about SARS-CoV-2 and white-tailed deer, um, and we'll put a couple of links in the show notes. But for example, one study that I was just looking at, they sampled, or they took 152 samples from white-tailed deer from the year 2021, and they basically analyzed those to look for antibodies to SARS-CoV-2, aka COVID, and they actually found that about 40% of those samples were positive for the virus. So that's, that's a lot. And that was from deer from a few different states that they sampled. And then interestingly, when they looked at samples from before 2021, I think they had one sample that came up positive for some reason, but um, basically all of the pre-2020 samples were negative. So that definitely shows that these deer are coming up positive because they were exposed. And it uh, highlights how contagious SARS-CoV-2 is. Yeah, for sure. If but it's spreading that much in deer populations. Yeah, for sure. And so these weren't deer that were sick. These were serum samples that were just collected opportunistically. Um, so it's not like these deer were, you know, sick with the virus. Um, but it definitely shows that they were exposed. Yeah. So yeah, that's interesting. Not, this isn't like a clinical study or anything it's more just a, yeah opportunistic sampling so it just gives you a sort of a rough snapshot of exposure rates yeah exactly yeah and so this is interesting because you could sort of classify this as a what we would call a reverse zoonosis so usually when we talk about zoonotic disease we're talking about diseases that spread from animals to people but we also have to keep in mind that it works both ways so this is a case where deer through coming in contact with human populations have now been exposed to the virus as well so i'll be really interested to see where this goes and you know a lot of groups are obviously really keeping a close eye on this and then national wildlife health center just put out a bulletin talking about their future plans partnering with the center for disease control cdc to really increase their surveillance of wildlife populations for sars-cov-2 so I'm sure we're going to be seeing a lot more positives, a lot more species that are showing up as having been exposed. And then there's also questions of, you know, will wildlife 
you know, going forward, service sort of a reservoir of the virus for people. So, yeah. Or worst case scenario, um, enable some sort of, you know, uh, evolution of the virus or um, mixing of the virus with other viruses. And that's where things could get really dangerous. Unlikely, but it's always possible. Yeah, for sure. Anytime we're passing things back and forth. Yeah. You know, there's always that opportunity for mutations and, and things. So with that, yeah, I think we'll wrap it up with number one. Yeah, SARS-CoV-2 dominating everything in the world, even little wildlife health podcasts. Okay, so up next on our list of top news stories in wildlife health in 2021, we have rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus 2, also known as RHDV2. RHDV2. So for anyone that has been following this, um, you have probably seen that this is a, one of the biggest wildlife health stories of basically 2020 and 2021. So this has been going on for a couple of years. So what is it? So rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus 2 this was a virus that was first detected in wild rabbits back in April 2020. So that was the first time we detected it in wild rabbits in the United States. And so that was a big deal. And that first detection occurred in New Mexico. And so this is a virus that can infect both wild and domestic rabbits and hares. And it's a big deal because this is a highly fatal virus. So this is not, this is not a, a nice one. And it's tough too, because often there's no clinical signs other than sudden death. So that's not a very helpful, <laughs> that's not a very helpful clinical sign for early detection. Um, so when rabbits are infected with this virus, we'll see, you know, they'll just sort of die suddenly without any sign that there's anything wrong. We might see hemorrhage from the nose, fever, anorexia. So this is a nasty one. Um, and so basically since the spring of 2020, this virus has been spreading, um, in both wild and domestic pet rabbits. And so it's basically been marching its way across the U S so it's spreading in a lot of different States, um, in the Western U S where it started, but now we're also starting to see some cases pop up on the East coast, um, specifically in domestic animals. As of right now, we haven't had any detection in wild rabbits here. Thankfully. Thankfully. that's probably coming. Yeah, it's probably on its way. So just to kind of quickly recap how fast this thing has been spreading over the last couple of years. As I mentioned, we had our first detection in wild rabbits in New Mexico in 2020. But as of, as of today, basically, we've confirmed it in wild rabbits in New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Colorado... California, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, and Oregon. So that's a lot of a lot of new states that have popped up. Right, and it's probably a factor of any of the states in that whole in those regions not listed probably have it. We just haven't detected it. Again, right. like you said, it's just sort of like rabbits get it, and then there's usually this very quick and sudden mortality. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you have to be able to find these carcasses and submit them for testing to the wildlife health labs. Or be doing screening 
of what you perceive to be as healthy or not healthy, but populations that don't have it yet and hope you detect it right. when it does show up. Right. So undoubtedly, it's in more places than we know of right yeah. now, but we're definitely keeping a close eye on this. And we do have a lot of info on this on our sister website, wildlifehealth.org. We have a whole page about rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus that kind of breaks down how this thing has been spreading over the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, this is an interesting one because, as I mentioned, this is one of those classic One Health or conservation medicine stories because it does involve that overlap between wild and domestic animals. So this, as I mentioned, can affect both pet rabbits um, and wild rabbits, and it can spread between the two. It's, it's very contagious, this virus. It can be spread from infected body fluids, urine, things like that. It can also be spread um, through environmental contamination. So particularly people that have pet rabbits outside, um, this could be a way for this thing to spread between wild and domestic animals. And while this all sounds pretty disastrous, there is some good news on this front. Yeah, so at least for domestic animals, we have um, a couple vaccines, or I should say one in particular, one vaccine that's just been developed. It's, it's an experimental vaccine, but they have released it um, for vets to start using for domestic rabbits. And so I'm kind of in the thick of, of this because I have been monitoring this from both sides because obviously I've been monitoring it from the wildlife side, but also I, I do work with pet rabbits as well um, clinically. So I'm actually myself in the process of getting this new vaccine. It's made by the company Medgene um, to try to get some of my pet rabbit patients vaccinated before this thing starts spreading too much into our area. Um, and this also has implications for um, threatened and endangered species, particularly up here in New England. Um, yeah. Got the New England cottontail. Right, which is in the process of recolonizing some of its former range, and this could be a really disastrous impediment to that recovery. Yeah. I also think of um, pygmy rabbits out west and how they're, they're having serious struggles, um, most recently related to uh, wildfires burning over some of their, their habitat, and they're having you know near-complete loss of, of individuals and colonies. Um, out west and their pygmy rabbits are struggling mightily and, and some of those reintroduction um, and captive breeding programs um, you know they're 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 they could get hit pretty hard by this so I, I'd be curious to see how they're faring and then um, sort of um, a peripheral species would be lynx and lynx you know rely a lot on uh, snowshoe hair and if they're the snowshoe hares are getting hit by this pretty hard, then we'll probably see that um, show up in, in lynx numbers as well. Yeah, not that the lynx are going to get this virus. This is only right. a virus of rabbits and hares. But as you're saying, we could have these secondary impacts if, if numbers of rabbits are dropping. Right, we would see that sort of oscillation between the snowshoe hare numbers decreasing and as a primary or, or as a key prey species for the lynx, yeah, lynx lynx numbers could could be. Yeah, that's impacted. really interesting. I hadn't even I hadn't even considered that. Yeah, and I, you know I don't know about lynx, uh, you know I don't know about lynx very well, but in I know in the GYE uh, their presence and and uh, success and is 
closely tied to snowshoe hare in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So I'm sure that's the case in, in other parts of the range. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so this is not something that just is, you know, a, a disease concern. This has real conservation impacts on a high level. Yeah, so. especially when you're saying there's such a high mortality rate from yeah. this. Yeah, so big news story. <laughs> also another, uh, another one that hopefully um, will lessen in severity over time and this vaccine can do a lot of good work but um wide-ranging impacts and um yeah potentially very detrimental to wildlife and uh human pets okay so number three in our list we have the mystery songbird disease of 2021 which still at this point doesn't really have a name yeah not really um because as we'll get to in a second, we still don't really understand what happened. So you may have seen this again in the news. It was quite a big story, especially for those of us here on the East Coast. So this was something that popped up between May and July of, of this summer, 2021. And it was primarily over here on the Eastern states. And this was some kind of disease that for some reason was targeting mainly fledgling songbirds. And so the most common um, species that we saw being affected by this mystery disease were blue jays, grackles, starlings, and, and robins were also represented. And this was a disease that caused these kind of swollen, crusty eyes, but also some pretty nasty neuro signs. So it caused some trevor, tremors, um, paralysis, things like that. So these fledgling songbirds started to be found and submitted to wildlife rehabs with these eyes that were just crusted over shut and they're just in horrible shape, neuro, neurologic signs. Um, and we weren't exactly sure what was causing it. And, you know, we thought it, you know, was probably due to something that can typically cause these sorts of diseases in songbirds. But as we started to see more and more of these cases rolling in and started to do more testing, we realized that this was probably something that we hadn't seen before. So, they were able to rule out some of the common diseases that we already know about that could potentially cause similar signs in songbirds. So they ruled out, for example, finch eye disease, AKA mycoplasmal conjunctivitis, which is a big thing we tend to see in, in finches, for example. Yeah, anyone that uh, feeds birds in their backyard may have uh, encountered this at one point or another or should always be on the lookout for it. Yeah, again, it causes just kind of eye disease, swollen, eyes, red eyes, crusty eyes, um, that sort of thing. But they ruled that out. So yeah. that's not what was causing this. This was something different. They also ruled out some of our, you know, common offenders like West Nile virus, avian influenza, basically all the things that we already knew about, they, they ruled out. So the question still remained, what actually caused this disease? And as, as far as I've been able to tell, um, we still don't quite have an answer for it. So at this point, we're not sure if this is something that was bacterial, was it viral, was it fungal, um, or was it something environmental? And that's where that's where it gets interesting because, so as quickly as this disease popped up on the East Coast, um, basically by late summer, around September, all of the cases went away and we stopped seeing it. So it basically showed up for a few months out of nowhere and then as quickly as it showed up it just went away 
Yeah, like you said, it impacting, you know, mostly uh, fledgling songbirds. Um, yeah, those birds either, um, you know, perish from it that were infected or, uh, yeah, had some sort of resistance um, and then um, sort of uh, grew up and we'll see maybe this will uh, cycle back around next breeding season right with the next batch of, of fledglings yeah so we'll be super curious to see what happens in summer 2022 um because yeah the question is was this something that was you know a disease that's um you know contagious between birds mm. or was this something environmental and there's been all sorts of you know, theories floating around out there. And, and one of the more interesting ones that some have, you know, sort of postulated about is, was this connected to the emergence of the brood X cicadas that happened this summer? Oh, that's a fascinating <laughs> yeah. link. I could, I could see something with that. Yeah. Because so, there was yeah. a lot of talk about a fungus yeah. related to that brood emergence. Either some sort of fungal infection in those insects yeah. or... Um, was it some sort of like toxin pesticide related to the fledglings ingesting the cicada? So I don't know. I And a lot of people kind of don't think that there's a lot of merit to that theory, but it's interesting. Yeah. So I don't know. But stay tuned. And then you probably, you know, if you were following this or if you feed birds in your backyard, if you've got backyard bird feeders, you may have seen in your state, if you're here on the East Coast, um, many of the state agencies and Audubon's. Um, did put out recommendations for taking your feeders down just because we didn't know how transmissible this was. And of course, anytime we bring birds together at feeding, you know, feeding stations, bird feeders, that sort of thing, we have increased risk of disease transmission. So out of yeah, abundance or, of caution, they, they often recommend just taking those down. Right. Or transmission to your, your pets, or if you have any animals on your property, chickens or what have you. Yeah. You would just have, abundance of caution is always a great, yeah. great way to handle it. And as far as we know, there was no, you know, confirmed cases of this spreading to domestic birds or anything like that. But right. because we weren't sure of the underlying cause, um, caution sometimes is the best, the best way to go precautionary principle yeah and just as a quick side note quick psa if you do have backyard bird feeders always good practice no matter what to clean those regularly you know usually they recommend using about a 10 percent bleach solution mm -hmm. wear gloves when you handle it um you know all of that good stuff so if you're feeding birds in your backyard just remember it is a responsibility to keep things clean and help decrease the risk that you're unintentionally spreading anything between your backyard birds. A new recommendation that I've heard that makes a lot of sense too is is trying to rake up and, and remove some of the uh, built up seed debris and, and fecal matter that can collect under bird feeders and sort of raking that up, shoveling that away um, so that you don't have that you know big reservoir of just sort of decaying. Yeah, um, exactly. Especially if you're, you know, your dogs are getting into it or things like that. Yeah, but you also have a lot of like, you know, morning doves and yeah, the ground might feeders, all the yep. ground feeding birds, turkeys if they come through your yard. Yeah, um, yeah, we're, we, you know, whatever ground feeding birds are are going to be exposed to a lot of um, that matter. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, yeah, mystery songbird disease of summer 2021. Will it return in 2022? I don't know. Stay tuned. We'll yeah. find out. <laughs> Fingers crossed it does not, but uh, yeah, I don't have high hopes. We'll see. Okay, so our fourth and second to last 
top news story in 2021 for wildlife health is the Huntington Beach oil spill. Now, this fortunately ended up not being too disastrous of an oil spill, but at the time, it looked like it was going to be an utter disaster, um, and thankfully there wasn't as much oil spilled as expected, and kudos to the town of Huntington Beach um, and their crews out there for both being uh, prepared for oil spill response and then uh, demonstrating a, a very rapid response that um, helped protect a lot of uh, sensitive areas and and sort of contain uh, some of the damage and um, kudos to um, international bird rescue and the oiled care oiled wildlife care network i always screw that one up uh, for their work in um, responding to any of the oiled wildlife and i think weeks ago now they had released the last of their uh, wildlife that they had gotten into uh, into their care and um you know we won't go into a lot of the details here but but do check out our episode uh with uh, rebecca Dewar at uh, international bird rescue which was uh, episode number 10 for um, some really great insight into how they treat uh, wildlife and and some of the um actual you know numbers on that oil spill yeah definitely so this was something that was in the news a lot and definitely there were far-reaching impacts. I don't want to minimize the impacts that did occur, but yeah, as has been mentioned, all in all, it could have been way worse. So yeah, oil spills uh, continue to be an issue uh, impacting wildlife health across the, across the globe. And, and I think will continue for a long time. And we know that this is an issue that um, will happen no matter what, no matter the, um, precautions that we take this is this is something that that impacts wildlife everywhere um often on small scales too i think it's these big spills that um everybody thinks of but there's also a lot of really small scale spills that occur um that don't garner a lot of the news attention um that are affecting localized wildlife and um yeah um you know people usually take notice of large numbers of wildlife, but it's when you have some of these, you know, really small and threatened and endangered populations with, you know, narrow distributions, um, when you have a localized spill impacting them, boy, you can have really, really disastrous results for um, a lot of wildlife species. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so our fifth and last top news story for 2021 is something I don't know much about as of yet, and that's the Florida Manatee Mortality Event. And Michelle, why don't you fill us in as to what this is all about? Yeah, so this is something that has popped up in national news over the last couple of months, um, but primarily kind of came onto my radar through a couple of news outlets in December. So basically what's been happening is this year in 2021, Florida saw a record number of mortalities in their manatee population. So for example, as of December 24th this year, they had um, reported about 1,083 deaths um, in manatees that were recovered. And so to put that in perspective, 
previous year, 2020, they only reported about 600 deaths. So that's a big, a big jump. So that got people, you know, wondering what the heck was going on here. And in fact, because of this unusual spike in deaths, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has officially declared it um, what they call an unusual mortality event, or UME. And so the the story here is one of, you know, not a problem of manatees, but like so many things, it's a complex problem that involves interplay of environmental health, ecological health, and wildlife and human health. Um, but for this story, we're mainly focusing on wildlife health. So what's been going on? So basically what it looks like is happening down in Florida is we're seeing this increase in mortality is actually due to malnutrition and starvation in these manatees. So that's pretty sad. So what's going on? So one of the primary foods that these guys eat is seagrass. And so most of these mortalities are occurring on the east or the um, Atlantic coast of Florida, primarily in the Indian River Lagoon region. And so this is a, a environment that has had a lot of issues with water quality um, in recent years. And so what's actually happening, it looks like, is we're seeing a lot of poor water quality and really bad algal blooms happening in this body of water. And so with these really thick algal blooms, you guys have probably seen pictures or maybe seen this in person, the water just gets so green, so opaque that it doesn't allow the light to shine through. So the seagrass that's grown on the bottom isn't getting enough light and it's dying off. So poor water quality leads to die off of seagrass. No seagrass means manatees lose one of their primary food sources. And so most of what we're seeing with these guys are basically mortality due to malnutrition or starvation or a lot of disease or other things related to just poor nutrition. So, you know, this is obviously not something that has a quick fix. Ultimately, this is going to need, you know, an effort to really clean up the water quality in that region, which is not, not easy, but there is some movement and some funding to make some some changes to hopefully decrease these algal blooms and, and improve the water quality there. But interestingly, as sort of an emergency intervention that Fish and Wildlife is looking at implementing down here in Florida, um, is they're actually planning to do a, a feeding, a supplemental feeding trial to just sort of see if they can help decrease these mortalities. And obviously that's not gonna fix the problem ultimately, but, you know, in an emergency situation, as a temporary, you know, solution, that's what they're looking at doing on a small scale this winter. So will be really interesting to see how that works out and um, what happens going forward. Yeah, that's a fascinating story in that if you think about manatees and, and their natural history, they're these, you know, waterbound creatures that... Um, you know, roam through these waterways. And if you have this sort of entire waterway or large region um, impacted by these algal blooms, they, they really can't escape it. It's not like they can just go to the next, 
you know, waterway nearby or, you know, like a, like a land-based animal might be able to, or a bird, if they can't find food, they'll just sort of keep moving and moving until they do. But, uh, yeah, I could see having, you know, large numbers, um, suffering in, in these instances until the problems abated yeah. or, or, or clears up. Um, yeah. So that feeding trials, yeah, that's, I could see that being helpful or at least buy some time to have things resolved. Yeah. 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 And should definitely mention, this is something that's being um, planned with wildlife agencies and conservation agencies in Florida. This is not, <laughs> um, this is not a call for people to just go out and, you know, if you live in these areas to just start feeding manatees. Yeah. You know. Save the romaine for the salad bowl, not the manatees. Yeah. Please do not just start throwing lettuce to manatees <laughs> if you live down there. Um, but definitely interesting. And of course, we're talking about, in this particular case, one issue with algal blooms, which is, you know, disruption of the ecosystem and killing off the seagrass. However, we also are not even scratching the surface of all the other issues that we see with algal blooms in water. Um, and this is a huge issue. This is probably something we're going to do a whole episode on because we do have some friends that study this. Yeah, maybe multiple episodes. Yeah. So, you know, there, we're not even talking about all the other things that could be happening here. So a lot of times when we have these, what we call harmful algal blooms or cyanobacterial blooms, they're all kind of related. We can also have a lot of toxic um, substances released as part of these blooms. So that is a whole other side of the issue that we're not even talking about here, but I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's that's playing into some of this as well. Yeah, it's uh, dangerous neurotoxins, hepatotoxins, big time die-off events of wildlife or long-term detrimental health impacts of these algal blooms. So yeah, that, uh, this'll, yeah, so this will be a, a, a wildlife health story that we'll continue tracking into 2022, it sounds like, and we'll probably learn just how detrimental these algal blooms might be. Yeah, for sure. So stay tuned on that one. Yeah. And so that, uh, that wraps up our, uh, top five, um, news, stories and wildlife health in 2021 and um yeah hopefully we'll uh, uh see some of these um these issues and these new stories um um resolve themselves and and improve in 2022 but yeah these are the heavy hitters for 2021 yeah so here's hoping for maybe a more boring 2022 yeah. but i don't think that's gonna happen <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Wildlife's never boring. It's always going to be something new, um, which makes for good podcast content. <laughs> we'll never run out of things to talk about. Yeah. Um, so on a lighter note, um, we both have some New Year's resolutions for 2022. Do you want me to get, share mine first or you want to go first? Are these resolutions for the podcast? Yeah, for the podcast. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, you go first. Okay. Uh, my New Year's resolution for the podcast is to get us into the Twitter sphere. Oh boy! And get us into Twitter and um, develop a Twitter presence and um, be all about that hashtag science Twitter. <laughs> That's gonna be all you. I don't have a Twitter account. Never used it. I kind of still don't really understand it. So that's all Everybody you. be tweeting. And... Yeah, I don't know. I think I missed that whole boat. But yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I think the more the more ways we can get 
this information out there and just get more people, you know, spreading knowledge about wildlife health, things that are going on, getting these topics out to a wider audience. Yeah. You know, I think that's that's kind of what we're what we're all about. So yeah, any platform we can use. Yeah, science Twitter is is the real deal. Yeah. And I guess along that line, so if you're gonna do Twitter <laughs> Right. My 2020 resolution for the podcast or 2022 resolution for the podcast is uh, I'm bringing it to TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Your first TikTok was pretty dang good. If anybody hasn't seen it, check it out. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, along that same lines of getting getting this out there and just reaching more people and, you know, having some fun with it. I decided to open up a TikTok account for the podcast. So. I have fallen into some black holes in TikTok, in the TikTok sphere. I still am really confused about it, but um, I think it'll be fun. You know, it's it's just a different way to share the information. Um, so, yeah, I look forward to that. Yeah. Maybe if we get a thousand follows on TikTok, you and I can do a viral TikTok dance. Okay. <laughs> You heard it, folks. If we get a thousand followers, we're doing a viral TikTok dance. <laughs> well, with that, maybe that'll be twenty twenty three. Well, with that, I guess I should maybe go, go make a TikTok. Go make a TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks again, everyone. Uh, Happy New Year's, and here's to a great twenty twenty two and a healthy twenty twenty two for humans, animals, and our environment. Yes. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org podcast.